somewhat paradoxically, the more that Africans and their descendants assimilated cultural materials from colonial society, the less human they became in the minds of the colonists, who seemed to wish they would simply embrace the void. anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 225 of Embrace the Void, where you're better read than dead. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we've got another installment of Black Marxism, so let's distribute according to our means. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My returning guest this week is Olafemi Otaiwo, assistant professor at Georgetown University in the Pan-African Community Action Area. Femi, would you like to once again say hi to the void? Hey, hey, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you back. We had a fun chat a while back about, you know, community issues, uh, racial capitalism, which was really great. And and it seems like we're gonna be doing a little bit more of that uh, today. I've been wanting to get you back on for a while and I messaged you and you've been quite prolific recently. So when I messaged you, I was like, hey, let's talk about your uh, elite capture and epistemic deference article. And you were like, well, why not talk about this book that I happen to just have coming out? So I just want to just note, first of all, that I, I feel like you're producing a lot of surplus value for someone who I believe is in the communist world of things. Do you want to, <laughs> do you feel guilty at all about that? That like, no, nothing. Yeah, no, no. You know, it's all about the people who produce the surplus value, right? I, I do appreciate that you have the means by which I can uh, receive the, the goods of having somebody on to talk about these things. So um, so we're going to talk about hopefully a little bit of both, because I do think there's some overlap in these topics. So first of all, do you want to sort of give kind of the basic idea of your epistemic uh, deference article? I think this is you know a big piece of the epistemic crisis, especially the kind of uh, standpoint epistemology stuff. So do you want to maybe explain how you understand standpoint epistemology and the problem you see with its application in the world that you were highlighting in that article? Yeah. So uh, maybe I'll start with what for me is the most basic thing, which mm -hmm. is this idea of elite capture. And uh, I wrote an earlier article where I was talking about that concept more squarely. But the idea is you have resources, but also just social projects, things that we're up to, right? Like mm -hmm. political movements, quests for knowledge, so on and so forth. And a lot of us are engaged in these directly ourselves. All of us 
live lives that depend on how they go, whether or not vaccine research is happening, for instance, as we can think about now in the context of the pandemic, whether or not um, the Black Lives Matter protests are winning as far as all of our relationships to police and policing, right? Um, So we all live in this complicated social world where resources are produced and distributed and projects happen. And one way that things can go is that those processes get captured, that over time they get more and more responsive to the people at the top of relevant social hierarchies and less and less responsive to the people at the bottom of relevant social hierarchies. And one Mm -hmm. thing I should say right away is that, you know, a lot of people have asked me about this. They're like, well, you know, what, what isn't elite capture? You know, when, when hasn't the institutions been captured? And I think that's a completely fair criticism slash question. Um, mm-hmm. We should be thinking thermometers rather than light switches, right? Mm-hmm. It's not as though there's some magic socialist institution where there's no elite capture or there's some magic capitalist institution where there's total elite capture. It's it's more of a spectrum kind of thing. And elite capture is something that can intensify or can get more or less checked by mm-hmm. good kinds of institutional design, good kinds of participatory, genuinely democratic social structures, all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So I, yeah. Yeah. So I started off thinking about elite capture. I've been thinking about elite capture for a while. And after I had written the first piece about elite capture, I started thinking about standpoint epistemology and the way people relate to identity, especially on social media. And I wanted to kind of explain the problems I have with some ways of thinking about standpoint epistemology based on elite capture. Mm -hmm. So standpoint epistemology, the basic idea is that knowledge is socially situated. So what kind of person you are depends, um, what kind of person you are influences, I should say, what kind Mm -hmm. of stuff that you know, right? And in particular, what the politically interesting version of the claim is that marginalized people, people who are uh, marginalized by the gender hierarchy under patriarchy or who are racially marginalized or um, who are disabled, Um, those people have advantages in gaining some forms of knowledge, um, Mm -hmm. especially Mm -hmm. forms of knowledge that have to do with, you know, society being ableist, society being racist, et cetera, et cetera. And so standpoint epistemology, the people who were thinking about this idea were saying when we're designing things like research programs, you know, a lot of these people were academics, right? Uh, We should take into account the fact that a lot of those marginalized people who are underrepresented in the academy um, actually know more than a lot of the people that get paid a bunch of money to pretend like they know things, right? Mm -hmm. So, So that was the basic idea of standpoint epistemology. But as it's proliferated, as people start using it, Um, And especially as it meets the kind of current discourse on identity politics, right? You see a lot of uses of this basic idea, which I always like to emphasize. It's just, I think, basically right, right? Mm -hmm. I think think the basis of this idea are are just clearly far and away correct. But you see a lot of uses of this idea that I am less comfortable with, that I I don't Mm -hmm. think are right, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, whatever it is that... A marginalized person says about racism or ableism or sexism is what you're supposed to go with. Those kind mm-hmm. of deferential ways of treating um, 
knowledge questions. So I totally 100% agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) I I like that you're giving me, giving me license to push back here at some point though, later I'll I'll use this against you later on, but yes, I I, I hear what you're saying. Right. Yeah. Please do. Right. right, You make this distinction right between what I think you call a deference approach and a constructive approach. Do you want to maybe highlight that distinction a little bit since I think it'll come up some in the book as well. Yeah. So one thing we could do with the standpoint epistemology set of thoughts is we could treat it as a kind of basic moral guide to interpersonal interactions. So whatever interactions we already have, we just kind of smash standpoint epistemology kinds of thoughts onto it. So if I'm Mm -hmm. talking to a woman, she says something about sexism. I, as a cisgendered man, say, you're correct. Um, If I'm talking to a white person, as a black person, and we're talking Mm -hmm. about racism, where I say goes, maybe, you know, those kinds of readjusting the normal conversational hierarchies in the interactions that we already have, um, but not telling us anything about what interactions we should be having that we might not be having, right? Nothing about institutions or um, interactions on a different scale entirely. Um mm-hmm. No necessary statements about those other things, right? That's the kind of deference epistemology way of using standpoint epistemology. And Mm -hmm. the thing that I suggest in this article is, well, there's another way you could use these insights, right? If we start from the premise that these are the, the basic ideas of standpoint epistemology is right, then the other thing that you could do is you could say, well, what we need to do are build is um, building the kinds of projects and the kinds of institutions that would circulate knowledge better, that would be less exclusionary in a patterned institutional-like sense, rather Mm -hmm. than going from individual micro-interaction to individual micro-interaction and trying to scale those. So it's more Mm -hmm. about building, say, citizen science or participatory research than it is about saying which researchers which individual researchers are the ones who know things. It's mm-hmm. more about challenging corporate control over media and um, the erosion of local journalism, for example, than saying, you know, which journalist should I be retweeting? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the approach that I think is more promising. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And so I think we'll talk about the systemic side of things there quite a bit here. I do. So I worry a, a little bit. I mean, I, I guess I wonder, do you have any suggestions for folks on the side of like, I know it's not your focus, but on the like individual interaction side, because I do feel like I see a lot of people who are genuinely struggling with this question of like, well, what should I do if this person from this group is arguing this one thing that seems false to me? And, you know, should I push back on their claims? Should I like, what approach should I be taking there? Is it, I mean, is it the thing where it's just like, that's too much of a case by case kind of question to really answer? Do you feel like you have sort of a general principle that like, you don't think that we should be deferential or do you think that we should be deferential in in like, mixed kinds of ways or something like that when it comes to these interactions? Yeah, it's, it's true that I um, am less focused on those interactions, but, but I do, you know, I don't think they're irrelevant. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and the way that I think about them is more um, in terms of what we might think of as like culture etiquette than, um, Mm -hmm. you know, than these kinds of up or down, 
do I agree with this person? Do I do what they say or not? Right. So I think your identity is very relevant to these individual interactions, not in terms of being, you know, decisive about which person is correct, mm-hmm. but, but, but it does, you know, you know, it does matter how disagreement is expressed. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, I as a cisgendered man, if somebody, if I'm talking about patriarchy and someone who isn't a cisgendered man is like, well, I think it's this way, you know, I, I think there, there's more questions than just, you know, do I think they're right or do I think I'm right, right? You know, maybe mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. correct, but if the way that I express that is, well, you know, I read all these peer-reviewed articles, you fucking idiot, right? I think there's a problem with that, uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> right? And, and, it's, and it's totally, and it flies free of the question of whether or not deference is happening, mm-hmm. right? And, and so I think in, the most I have to say is that if there's a politics of, identity that's supposed to track our social positions as far as how disagreement should go um that's where it is right like Mm -hmm. how do these how do these arguments happen in a granular sense um Mm -hmm. how do disagreements get expressed how does respect get expressed um those are all very important questions and identity has everything to do with them um but those are different questions than who gets agreed with who whose word goes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, and this will sort of bridge us over into the book a little bit. You know, some people don't love labels, but I think that it's nice to be able to talk about sort of broad movements and disagreements between movements and things. Do you feel like it would be fair, roughly speaking, to categorize this article as kind of a black Marxist critique of wokeness? You know, those terms being sort of understood culturally in various kinds of ways, but like in terms of like... it. I think the deference problem is one that is often raised, it seems like, as a critique of wokeness by both sort of anti-woke groups, but also by, it seems like, individuals like yourself who are more sympathetic to things like black Marxism. Do you feel like that's a fair sort of way to frame this article? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, I'm still reeling from the fact that, like, the term woke is the thing white people say now. I apologize. <laughs> I, I will I will defer to you and not use it anymore. I, there's no way no, not to, right? It's, like it's, I mean it's, it's, it's yeah. Yeah, it's it's why and it's really difficult not to, right? Because it's so, you know, that's the way that across the political spectrum this kind of center left consensus gets referred to. Mm-hmm. Um so so yeah, yeah. I mean maybe it's too late to fight that kind of co option. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do, really I do feel bad that the term has been is has been you know, turned in this way, right? Uh, and I like part of me feels like you know, my response is I'm going to continue to self-identify as woke, even if it's cringe to do so as a white person and be like, it doesn't have to be this deferential kind of thing. And like, we don't have to see the term, even if we can acknowledge that there are reasonable criticisms of it from, you know, including folks like black Marxists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the long game, I think, I think it's, I, I think it makes sense not to concede the word. But I, I think the, the thing I'm more worried about is that, mm-hmm. like, following what the word meant, you know, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. like, I, I, would, I would classify the black Marxist position that I'm taking as a woke position. 
Absolutely. And I would too, right? right? I think that's, and like, I think you would be accused of being woke by people of the anti woke persuasion if you didn't like explicitly, like, properly name check your black Marxists, you know, at the, at the door or something like that, you know? Right. And, and so, you know, it's not like, put it this way, it's not an external critique of wokeness, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like a non woke position critiquing a woke position. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's a good discussion within wokeness, maybe. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And I mean, like, one of the things I noticed when I was reading your book is that, like, a lot of the content is very similar to the stuff that, like, I've been reading that people would also classify as woke, which is often, like, these analyses of history that attempt to complicate historical narratives that, like, you know, that's that same work, it seems like, is happening. And, you know, the reality is that, like, I think what the Black Marxists are bringing into that whole milieu is that sort of focus on economic system level kind of challenges and things like that, not just like cultural, social level kinds of critiques. Now, something else I think is interesting, and maybe this gets at your elite capture thing a little bit. Um, you know, historically, in my experience, black Marxists get blackballed, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a long and rich tradition of even like the NAACP throwing, you know, black Marxists under the bus because of red scare communism stuff and things like that. Um, you cite, I think, Paul Robeson in your book, for example, is a famous uh, case of that. I don't think you cite him for that, but like he is one. Um, mm-hmm. I guess, first of all, so I wonder, do you feel like that has changed? Or are you worried about your position because you might get blackballed at some point the time the next red scare runs around? Or do you feel like there's more room for these views in the conversation now? Yeah, I, I do. I do worry about that. Um, one thing that seems meaningfully different about today's context um, than previous kinds of um, er- previous eras of Black liberation struggle is that at least the iconography, at least the aesthetic of Black radicalism, like the Black far left, at least that is is kosher down amongst mm-hmm. kind of mainstream black politics, right? So, uh-huh. you know, there's Asada taught me tote bags and, you know, whatever, uh, you know, people posing in front of murals of Black Panthers and a, and a movie about Hampton, right? Things well, that- that fine line of getting co-opted there. Right. It, yeah. it, and, you know, arguably not <laughs> not even the, the walking the fine line, right? But, right. But, but that- you know, that's not the move that the NAACP, I feel like, would have made mm-hmm. 40 years ago, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago. And and so I do think things are different now. Whether or not that will save us, those of us who are on the black far <laughs> left, yeah. that I don't know. But it does yeah. seem like a new, like a kind of unprecedented moment. I mean, I ask because I feel like you're you know, the, the, the stuff that you put forward in the book that we'll discuss here in a second is radical, right? In the sense that like, you you know, and, and we can argue maybe it's radical to the point where none of it's ever going to actually get done, but like your prescriptions are certainly the sorts of things that get, you know, black radicals thrown against the wall pretty effectively. So, um, so let's talk about the book here some, right? So the book is titled Reconsidering Reparations, which I love is a deliciously ambiguous yet inciting kind of title, right? I feel like people will immediately be uh, both up in arms, uh, but not quite sure exactly what you mean um, by reconsidering, quote unquote. Uh, so what is your thesis from this book? How would you sort of say what you, what you said your claim is here? 
So there are basically two central claims of the book. Uh, the first central claim of the book is there are a number of competing ways that you could think of reparations. Um, mm-hmm. There's what I call the harm repair view. There's what I call the relationship repair view. And there's a third kind of view that I call the constructive view of reparations. And I and the first claim of the book is just constructive view is the good one. Pick that one. Mm-hmm. And And then the second major claim of the book is that from the point of view of the constructive view, the kind of politics that we need a focus on and a major victory on to achieve the project of reparations and racial justice is climate justice. Hmm. And so... Mm -hmm. Those are the two things. One is just about, you know, this kind of theoretical discussion about what the good case for reparations is. And then the second one is a practical, important practical upshot of that view. Okay, great. So, yeah, let's take those in turn, right? So you've got um, this constructive view of reparations. Um, What what would you say is sort of connected to the construct? Sorry, let me ask you this. Um, How is this constructive account? connected to the kind of constructive epistemology that you referenced in the elite capture are those are those different uses of the word construction or is in your mind there a sort of a larger constructivist project at work here yeah i think i think constructivist the constructive view really is a kind of politics it's a kind of approach to politics and so the constructive epistemology and the constructive view of reparations are really that same view and that same ethos at different scales. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but in either case, you know, w- what it's an attempt to say, I think is that it's not enough to change the things that we do individually or even collectively, but the very terrain, the very system that organizes our behavior is something that we can treat as a target for intervention and that we have to treat as a target for intervention if we want to be successful in any of the other political goals that we're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. So what makes this fundamentally constructive as opposed to like, what, what how, do, how do you contrast this with like what you think are the weaker approaches to reparations? What's the advantage here? So the major advantage um i guess i guess there are a couple one is a kind of just theoretical difference maybe and i Mm -hmm. think of it as an advantage because i'm committed to what i'm committed to right but um you know (laughs) we all got to pay up make a living i understand indeed (laughs) indeed um but you know the harm repair view is the view that uh what reparation should do is increase how well off our target population is. So maybe it's African-American descendants of slavery in the United States. Maybe it's the residents of uh, the Caribbean, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. The population of the Caribbean. Maybe it's um, indigenous groups, First Nations in Canada, whatever the group might be. Um, the point of reparations is to make them better off, mm-hmm. right? And, and that is achievable, you know, theoretically speaking, um, without saying anything about what happens to people outside of that group or saying at all what happens to the rest of the world. So maybe mm-hmm. the, the U.S. Federal Reserve and the Treasury cook up some, you know, 
bonds or some shit and they just okay. hand them out <laughs> right and, yeah. and we don't ask any other questions about what happens to the rest of the world the rest of the um so it's a very discreet system. sort of solving a specific wrong or problem or something like that yeah and 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 the wrong is measured in welfare or dollars or or utils sure. if you like right <laughs> i do I, I i love a good util thank you <laughs> And then there's the relationship repair view, which mm-hmm. says, well, no, the thing that we're trying to fix isn't an individual group's welfare, but it's the relationship between a group and something else, maybe between a group and another group, maybe between a group and a government, um, but some kind of relationship. So maybe between mm-hmm. African-American descendants of slavery and their uh, non-black fellow citizens, maybe between um, them and the United States federal government, maybe between the Caribbean and the British Empire, whatever. And in both of those situations, I think you're dealing with something that doesn't fulfill the thing that I mentioned earlier when I said what the constructive view was. Like nobody's taking the global system itself, the global political system, Mm -hmm. as the thing, as the target of intervention. Uh-huh. And, and so I just think from a practical perspective, you know, like as as I'm sure we'll get into, there's a lot of parts of my view that seem utopian or pie in the sky. Um, mm-hmm. But I think actually there's nothing. You know, it, By comparison, like those views are utopian, right? The idea that you could, you know, get a huge transfer on the scale of billions or trillions um, without any kind of concomitant change in global politics, right? Uh-huh. From, uh, from a major world power, from, from major world powers like the U.S. and the United Kingdom, et cetera, to non-major world powers. Like, to me, that mm-hmm. is far more utopian than anything I've said in the book. Um, so do you yeah. feel like you you could maybe I, I'm curious if you could characterize this view or what would be the disadvantage of characterizing this as a sort of a version of a relationship repair approach where the thing where the relationship we're, we're repairing is like our relationship uh, with global politics or our relationship with the climate or something like that. Does that still yeah, feel you could. Narrow? Mm-hmm. You, you could. Right. Um, and a lot of people brought this up uh Especially because okay. uh, I was I was very critical of the relationship repair people <laughs> <laughs> when I was writing this book and presenting it, that, and I'm like, you know, you yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to call it a relationship repair view, that's fine. Okay, I was um, just curious so, if you felt like there was a really significant distinction to be had there. No, I I, I think the distinction is one of scale, right? Mm-hmm. Because if we're if we're talking about all the relationships that the constructive view would change. And we're not talking about, you know, pairwise relationships between one oppressed group and a government or even a bunch of oppressed groups and a bunch of governments. Right. We're also talking about different relationships between productive processes and the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Right. We're talking about different relationships between non-oppressed groups and um, critical resources like housing, energy, food and water as well as oppressed groups in all of those systems. Mm-hmm. And if you're, and if you're willing to, you know, show me, I don't think that's the relationship repair view that like the Kantians put together. Right. Fair enough. 
All right. Uh, well, that makes yeah. sense. Right. So yeah. you'd, you'd certainly be stretching their conception to, to sort of incorporate yours if they were trying to do so. Um, right. So, yeah, that makes sense. Now, I mean, you have brought up something here that I think is valuable for me. Like my knee jerk reaction is as I'm listening to your book or reading through your book. Right. Like I'm at the same time, I'm in agreement with your thesis. And I'm also like we're failing so dramatically on like the smaller scale, like approaches to this issue. How do I not see this as this kind of utopian wishful thinking other than saying, well, the other people are utopian too, right? Is there any sort of other way that you feel like you could sort of help me understand why I shouldn't listen to that voice in my head? Like, is there, do you feel like there's some evidence that there is the possibility for this kind of global shift? So you should listen to that voice in your head. Okay. Great. And, 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 and that's why I wrote the final chapter of the book, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Because, you know, if I'm taking all of the previous chapters of the book seriously, right? And if I really mean them, then I'm like, oh, we're, we're literally remaking the world. We're not metaphorically remaking the world. We are literally changing the physical, political, and economic structure of human activity and human relationship to the ecosystem. Right. Mm-hmm. That might take a while. <laughs> you know, that might not happen at all. Right. That might take a lot of political will, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So the reason why the book concludes with this chapter on why we should think about like ancestors, right, why we should think um, about our descendants is because we need to, in my view, adopt a kind of peace with the kind of time scale on which this kind of view is achievable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I would love it if we could, you know, storm a few castles and fundamentally reconstruct human relationships to each other and to the planet in the next few years. Mm-hmm. But I think a change of that scale is likely to be a multi-generational project. Mm, and yeah, and so, yeah, so... so so that's the first thing I want to say. Like, I think that is a completely fair reaction and um, we need to uh, take it seriously. But I also think that, you know, similar to what I was saying earlier about elite capture, um, we need to think more in terms of like thermometers than light switches. Mm-hmm. So, so rather than thinking like, how do we build, you know, fully automated gay space luxury communism in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Right. I think like, how do we, how do we, you know, it's a, you know, territory by territory. How do we make aspects of social life democratic and climate resilient, you know, mm-hmm. piece by piece. And so that's what chapter five, the second to last chapter of the book, is trying to say, right? Divestment campaigns are ways of kind of looking at discrete, um, looking at progress in a way that is discrete and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, achievable and has been achieved, right? Like we have seen a bunch of institutions divest from fossil fuels some of whom have invested in things that were better for human life, right? That Mm -hmm. is measurable progress towards the kind of thing that we want. It's not an inexorable progress. It doesn't mean that the fact that we've won, you know, a few universities divesting means that we're going to get everything else, but it is Mm -hmm. movement in the direction of the kind of thing that we should want. 
and we should apply that kind of thinking in general. The more institutions we get to divest from fossil fuels, the more institutions we get to divest from carceral infrastructure, and then the more we divert those human resources into things that are good for people, that expand housing justice, that expand democratic control over energy and utilities and democratic control over housing, um, we move towards the kind of world that the constructive view is trying to build. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to talk about the policies some. Before we shift away from the conceptual side, something else that I'm wondering here. So, so generally speaking, and I think you highlight this in the book, right? When we think of reparations, we usually have in mind something like America paying, you know, the the descendants of slaves or indigenous people whose land has been stolen or something like like like, like sort of again this kind of um, harm, you know, correction model. Um, what do you see as the value of? talking about this kind of large scale change that you're interested in here as a, as reparations, right? Why is this best understood as a form of reparations, but at a much sort of larger scale rather than just talking about it in terms of, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if there's another way you could put it that would be less sort of controversial justice or something like that. Maybe you feel like that's just sort of avoiding the question, but I guess I'm wondering what about this is really, sort of reparations focused in that sense? So a lot of the things that I have to say are, um, especially on the policy side, are things that are kind of individually um, articulable um, as kind of freestanding forms of justice, right? The Giving African-Americans checks, for example, is the thing that really says, yells reparations at people. But some of these other things don't, right? Like Mm -hmm. um, community control over energy, right? That doesn't necessarily say reparations to people or um, a global minimum tax that doesn't strike people as being a core part of reparations. Um, And so why, yeah, why group all of these things under the heading of a reparations project? And for me, it has to do with the thoughts that are expressed in uh, the third and fourth chapters about distributive justice and a historical conception of distributive justice, right? And so if you think of a project like responding to climate crisis, that's going to involve the entire world taking on burdens, taking on costs, and, and reaping some benefits for doing a planet-scale thing, mm-hmm. um, mitigation, adaptation, to respond to climate crisis. And if you think of that problem in distributive terms, historically distributive terms, then I think you come up against some very troubling things that have been very well talked about already, right? Um, mm-hmm. A small part of the world disproportionately um, some of the richer developing countries like China, but much more disproportionately the U.S. and the so-called West. Um, those are the countries mm-hmm. that have caused the problem. Um, mm-hmm. They are responsible for most cumulative historical emissions, and yet they are doing less than their fair share of what it's going to take to respond to climate crisis. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so I think what, what I'm trying to get at, the reason why I'm framing these things in terms of reparations and the reason why I'm pushing for the kind of holism that's involved in taking that view is because the accumulation, it's not just responsibility, historical responsibility that accumulates, right? It's not just emissions that accumulate. All this stuff is accumulations, mm-hmm. if the analysis in the book is right, right? The mm-hmm. fact that all the wealth and the research capacity and the geopolitical power is concentrated in the U.S. and the West is for the very same reasons that um, all of the poverty and the trash and the pollution is concentrated in the global South, and also the climate vulnerability is concentrated in the global South, right? And so Mm -hmm. I think we're going to narrow ourselves if we don't think of reparations, if we don't think of historical responsibility for the past on a similar scale of breadth and uh, similarly holistically, I think we're going to, um, I, I don't see a good chance that we're going to avoid um, the status quo's kind of unstoppable march to re-entrench and maybe even exacerbate the existing inequalities that were produced by the same era that produced the things that we want reparations for. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And, and I, I think, you know, there is, there is value to understanding this as, as a process that has to, to some extent, be backward looking. And that's why, you know, in a lot of the book, it feels like is this attempt, it seems like to better understand uh, parts of history, right? So for example, um, you know, in the section where you talk about slavery and abolition, um, you know, something that frequently comes up is that the British valiantly banned slavery. And that's sort of uh, often, I think it's thrown out in arguments about these historic injustices. Um, and I thought it was interesting that you took a more sort of pessimistic view of that event. Do you want to maybe sort of explain how you think we should understand the British choice to quote unquote ban slavery and how that might have sort of impacted what you're describing in terms of the, you know, what that has meant for where burdens and costs have been distributed in the world. Yeah. Uh, The (laughs) British, the British empire. Um, First of all, (laughs) yeah. I mean, the British empire, they're like a top three of like my comic book, evil villain, empires like i don't know there's a reason they play the villains in movies right yeah oh man these motherfuckers all right uh so did they valiantly um did they valiantly fight to end slavery kind of so it is of course true that the british imperial navy um did some work to try to shut down the transatlantic slave trade. Um, it is, of course, true that British Parliament and British politicking of various kinds put pressure on uh, various uh, countries to abolish the slave trade in those countries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All that is true. Um, the question is why? Is that an expression of um, a deep-seated antipathy towards injustice 
that was fought for valiantly by the British Empire? The answer to that, of course, is no. Here I'm led by um, work from about a century ago at this point uh, by Eric Williams, the, the book Capitalism and Slavery, which produced decades of just anxious cope from uh, very, um, very triggered economists and historians, but basically said what I just said to you now. If you if you look at the kind of historical forces that produced British abolitionism, it includes a lot of people who very sincerely were abolitionists, very ser- sincerely abhorred slavery, but it also includes a lot of people who felt like they could their interests would be better served, their economic interests, their geopolitical interests, their um, political interests in the sense of kind of intra-parliamental intrigue, um, but felt their interests would be better served by a different kind of economic model. And by the end of protection of the British mercantilist Mm -hmm. powers for competing economic models, right? So... Mm -hmm. Uh, if you're competing with slave-grown sugar and indigo and tobacco, and you think you can do it better with a extremely exploitative but different economic model that's mm-hmm. happening um, in British right. India, then then yeah, then maybe you throw some money at the Quakers who hate abolition or sorry who hates slavery for moral reasons um and I mean, I mean this is this is like no different right from like amazon using their their power or whatever in various ways to like crowd out competition by you know uh, being able to automate at scale or something like that and then like making it impossible for those who couldn't afford to automate at that kind of level or something right it's a similar similar approaches with bodies absolutely absolutely mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I think that explanation has kind of won the day. I mean, you can talk mm-hmm. to historians and they'll tell you if I'm right or wrong about that. But I think more or less that's the explanation. And, and you, in, in conjunction with this, basically argue that slavery and industry are fundamentally connected, if I understood that correctly. Right. That like and, and like. I'm, I'm more and more sympathetic to this claim, especially, you know, it, it occurred to me watching the Amazon facility that got hit by a tornado where people died because they literally weren't allowed to go home during a tornado. Like, we're still very much, like, relying on exploited labor in this kind of way on so many levels. And yet, like, to my knowledge, Amazon took no losses or anything for that particular story. Like, it just, it just gets memory hole, just disappears for the world, for all of us, because... Like, we're all going to keep using Amazon, it seems like. Um, So, like, do we, you know, it's hard because so many of the questions I have for you, I feel like just end with, how do we have any fucking hope when, like, (laughs) it seems like what you're describing from hundreds of years ago is just doing, we're just doing the same thing now. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, one of the big reasons, you know, one of the advantages of, Mm -hmm. um so-called politically free labor, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, the, the wage system as opposed to the racialized chattel system is that you get to make a lot of the things that happen to workers seem voluntary. Right, right. 
right? You know, the right, at, the right the to be of, exploited. Yeah. Exactly, right to work, right, <laughs> right to right. be exploited. Um, you know, uh, it's not so much that Amazon, you know, literally locked the doors with chains. Right. They just said, if you leave, you might not have a job. And if you don't have a job, you know, who knows what's going to happen to you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not our business. And it's not our business because we don't own you, right? Because you're mm-hmm. not our property. Um, and because you are uh, fungible in the kind of way that uh, workers are, especially when there is a uh, reserve army of the unemployed. So, there's a lot of just pragmatic pressures that decide what kinds of labor regimes are likely to thrive and be sustainable. Mm -hmm. And when the economic conditions change, working conditions might change. And we shouldn't be surprised about that. And we should be reluctant to attribute those to kind of genuine moral revolutions. Mm-hmm. So Eric Williams's line about this is that, like, look, if you think about the early stages of a colony before the population hits a certain point, before um, they have established industries and secure lines of trade and communication, um, it's going to be really expensive to get people to freely move to those circumstances, Right. Mm -hmm. People would prefer to stay in Ireland or France or London, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so those are the situations in which you see slavery on a mass scale. And once colonies are built up past that point, then it's simply a question of the entrenched interests who Mm -hmm. made money up to that point versus the new interests who could make money doing something else. And Mm -hmm. when those, that second group wins, then there'll be a shift, but we're not talking, we're entirely out of the space of, you know, deep moral realizations about the enlightenment or whatever the fuck it is that people (laughs) write about. Are you suggesting (laughs) that I, as an ethicist, am not going to solve any of these problems and help anyone? How dare you, sir? How dare you? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I I get what you're saying. I mean, look, it's, it's complicated because I do think that like philosophy does impact the world and that like movements are influenced by people who say important things and those things get picked up by other people but i also agree with you that like interest convergence right like as opposed to you know uh some teleological advancement towards social progress or something like that right Mm -hmm. so um so bridging into discussion of your solutions side of things um i do think it's important to note generally here i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because i think it's often a a point that some advocates will avoid for fear of making their already unpalatable position sound more unpalatable but i think if you understand your view correctly it seems impossible that we couldn't bring about the kind of we can bring about the kind of change you're describing without folks like you and me mostly me right having to take a pretty big cut in quality of life and in, in, in like in terms of what sort of things we have access to, how we have access to them, what kind of, you know, goods and services we have in you know, the lifestyle that I have become accustomed to. Right. Like, do you think it's important to say to people, look, 
we have to recognize that if you're going to stop having a system that exploits the margins, then the center is going to no longer be able to live in the way that it has for hundreds of years via that exploitation. Yeah, I I think about this a lot. And and the way that I I think the way that I've settled on thinking about it now is 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 certainly start off with yes, we have to acknowledge our levels of consumption are unsustainable, particularly, you know, affluent first worlders like myself, right? Um and that really is going to have to give, right? Mm-hmm. If we're going to have a different world. But I think the question from there is, does a concession of that kind, does a cut in that specific way of giving people social goods mean a cut in quality of life? Mm-hmm. And I think the work of moving forward politically is to find is is the design problem of trying to find a way in which that might not be true right so if we have you know substantial you know if we can't all afford hummers but we all have comprehensive public transportation right i've mm-hmm. given up a particular kind of hyper consumption that was possible before um, and that marked, you know, w- would be one way that I could mark a kind of class dominance over other people. And mm-hmm. so to the extent that like, to the extent that my sense of myself and my quality of my life is tied to being able to do those kinds of things, then yeah, maybe that's a quality of life hit. But if I just like being able to get around to places, mm-hmm it seems quite possible that the kinds of things that we need to do to build a more climate just world might actually make my life on net better. Even, even me as a, you know, fancy first worlder, not because I can do more stuff with my dollars, but because I can do more stuff with my life and better stuff with my life because we've built, you know, the kinds of community sustaining I mean, in the U.S., actual communities and not just places where people fucking park their shit. Mm-hmm. Um, that might actually be better, mm-hmm. right? And 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 that's the that's the goal we should be trying to reach. There's all mm-hmm. sorts of empirical questions that are going to decide whether or not it's attainable. You know, um, pu- low carbon public luxury, right? right? I mean, it does um, seem like American okay. individualism is going to give you a bit of a challenge, but obviously it's going to keep yeah. doing that forever, it seems like, right? Um, yeah. But like to to this end, I did like in your, at the beginning of your sort of solutions section, you open with this really evocative metaphor about wooden sake and miso barrels. Um, do you want to sort of explain a little bit that, that sort of metaphor and why you think it's uh, sort of illuminating for discussing policy conclusions? Yeah, I got really into soy sauce in the last. <laughs> hey, we all we all cope with the pandemic in various ways. I understand. Are you like brewing your own like ridiculous artisanal soy sauce in your apartment? I'm not, but okay. that is because it is. As I researched soy sauce, I found out that a that's actually process. quite typical. Yeah, it's a ridiculous. Yeah. It is it is so hard. Mm-hmm. to make, like, traditionally brewed soy sauce. Um, it's 
harder now than it used to be because there were more people that had um, the relevant knowledge for making the right kind of barrels um, and, you know, which take a particular kind of cedar um, and particular weather conditions make the brewing go right. You know, a lot of stuff mm-hmm. has to line up. Yep, yep. And and Gotta have snow fall on the barrel at just the right time under yeah. a full moon and shit. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know, I as I read more about soy sauce, you know, I was struck by how intergenerational these processes are. Right? Mm. The the cedar to make the barrels grows over decades. It takes years, maybe decades it seems to learn the craft of just making the barrels in the right way. And then once you've made the barrels, you have to get the you have to get the soy to make the mash in the right way, so that the microorganisms that are in the wood and also in the soy will react in the same kind of way. Um, and all the things that have to line up um, require lots of people and require lots of natural processes to cooperate. Mm-hmm. And in the particular story that I drew from to make this final chapter of the book, um, it was, I was dealing with, you know, the case of Yamamoto, I guess the, the soy baron or I don't know like <laughs> what you would call him. I don't know sure. what you would call him. But, soy Damio you know, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Let's make it. The futile. Shogun of the soy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I I really was as touched as I've ever been about a story about a capitalist, <laughs> where uh-huh. where it was just like his his grandfather and his grandfather's neighbor, like eighty years ago, mm-hmm. decided to plant these trees. Obviously, not knowing that their specific grandchild was going to do anything or even exist mm-hmm. right that they were just like the possibility of doing this 80 years from now depends on what we do with these seeds right now and and the cover of the book is actually um an egyptian farmer scattering seeds right i mm-hmm. to me that is the most that's the most literal evocative and truest way of explaining like what i think the constructive view should be about Mm -hmm. Right. Like we have to do we have a target that, you know, maybe if there's a miracle, we can reach ourselves. But I think is probably unattainable in the kind of scale of things that we in the scale of time that we've been socialized into thinking about politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that is not the only scale of human value that people respond to. Mm -hmm. Right. Yamamoto's grandfather responded to a scale of human value that did not require him to be there to taste the soy sauce. (laughs) And, you know, other people in their cultures and ancestors, I am sure, wherever in the world you find people with cultural traditions, you will find examples of this kind of understanding of community. I am going Mm -hmm. to do something now, not even because of what will necessarily happen in the future, but because of what this decision now makes possible for the future. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of practical affordances, as I, you know, as I said in other chapters, um, I can make available to descendants 
trusting them to do the rest of it. Yeah, and I really liked how your characterization of what we were working towards is this kind of, you know, society where individuals have these kind of affordances to to live a good life of flourishing, essentially, right? That like yeah. making people access, you know, making uh, um, reasonable, healthy, functional opportunities accessible to this sort of wide range of individuals. Now, I think that's a great sort of broad principle in practice. It's interesting how that plays out um, where you gave a couple of sort of practical ones. One thing you mentioned earlier, right, this divesting idea. And when I got to that in the book, maybe it's because of my own sort of backgrounds and things that I've, I've you know, looked into and stuff, but like it reminded me a lot of the uh, BDS movement with regard to Israel, this idea of divesting against individuals who are engaged in what you might consider ethically uh, questionable imperialism or something like that. Um, and I'm curious if that was in your mind at all when you were thinking about kind of models for this approach and what your feelings are about how divestment should be about not just divesting from you know, uh, oil or something like that, but divesting from, uh, you know, America or like countries that are the ones that are most actively engaged in, in immoral behavior. Yeah. I mean, at, at bottom, it comes from the kind of, uh, philosophical building blocks of the view, right? So, um, earlier in the book, I use this metaphor of an aqueduct, Right. Where I, mm -hmm. where I say, you know, this political system we built is a kind of distribution system. It doesn't just direct how stuff gets produced, but it directs where social advantages and disadvantages go after they're produced as well. So mm -hmm. it channels opportunity to some parts of the world and some people in the world. It challenge and it channels bad things, pollution, violence, toxicity to other parts of the world. And so redirecting those channels is just a very direct kind of use of that way of thinking about mm -hmm. the, the basic distributive problem, right? If, if the world is a distribution system, then, you know, we can intervene directly in the patterns of distribution and divestment campaigns are efforts to do that. Um, but it was, you know, I, that is a lesson that I'm taking from, you know, the BDS movement. Um, I think the kind of central example for me as I was writing this was actually the transnational um, movement of unions and activists and mm -hmm. uh, people um, in favor of racial justice um, in, against South Africa um, mm -hmm. under apartheid. Right mm -hmm. as as a way to put pressure on the apartheid government of South Africa, um, but it's the but in both of those cases, I think it's the it's the same basic thing. We we recognize that the patterns of distribution have political consequences beyond just who gets what amount of this discrete item, whether it's dollars mm -hmm. or you know um, or research funds or whatever. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And like the other thing that you mentioned in there in terms of the wealth stuff that really, you know, struck home for me was that like, you, uh, you, call, you know, the horrors of the ravages of like wealth havens, basically, right? That like the epitome of this extracted wealth problem that you've been talking about this whole time is these kind of wealth havens where 
you know, individuals feel like, or where, you know, the people could just stash all of this kind of money and it gets taken out of, out of circulation or out of functionality in this kind of way. And is sort of this endless hedge against um, needing to address these sorts of things. Now, this is another one where like, at the end of the day, my question is, how are we like like I'm, I'm more i think it's more plausible that we're going to storm amazon and murder jeff bezos than i feel like we're going to successfully get access to the wealth that he's extracted just because like the system is so deeply invested in you know once you've pooled that wealth keeping it pooled in this way so i guess i wonder what your prac what you, what you think would practically have to happen for us to be able to even get access to that wealth would it be like a much more beefed up um you know, UN or something like that is the idea that like countries need to be banding together to like, in, in you know, use sanctions or something. What do you see as the right lever to pull for trying to get a hold of that wealth? Yeah, I think this is, you know, I think this is one of the cases where the state and capital being highly intertwined, interdependent, but ultimately separate things is mm -hmm. most useful. Mm. Um, as of November, I believe, um, 130 countries had um, agreed to enact a global minimum tax mm -hmm. um, or expressed you know, willingness to do so, um, representing some 90% of the world's economy. Mm -hmm. There are still some holdouts, but, you know, it's not actually a pie in the sky thing that you could get global, broad, international cooperation via the state system on at least slowing the rate at which the cap, the, you know, arch capitalists pick our pockets. Mm -hmm. Right. I actually, I actually think that is doable and there's certainly appetite from other aspects of society. You know, there's been the Panama papers and other leaks of that variety, which involved huge, transnational investigations from a bunch of journalists um, mm -hmm. who presumably have some level of institutional cover to do this, right? So, so there is some intra-elite, there are intra-elite fractures of various kinds to exploit here. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I actually do think, you know, I don't know about, you know, emptying the tax havens, uh, mm -hmm. But, but I do think there, you know, significant movements of capital away from wealth hoarders and to people is a serious political possibility. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's a, that's a actually a fairly relatively optimistic note for us to sort of maybe wrap up, up on here. So do you, before I get to torturing you, do you want to let folks know, are there like other resources that you would recommend besides the book, obviously, which people should definitely pick up, but like things that have been really impactful for you for understanding this stuff, if they want to dive a little deeper on these subjects? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody should read From Here to Equality. Um, so that's Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullen's book on reparations in the US. I think, you know, there are 
I, I, I think it's a really helpful book just, um, I mean, for a variety of reasons, but the practical mechanics of actually building something with um, reparations funds and, and building kind of governance structures around it is something that they thought through very seriously. And so I think, you know, we should just do their plan, first of all, uh, but, but mm-hmm. also that their book about it that uh, folks should read. Um, I think for the historical stuff, um, Eric Williams's Capitalism and Slavery, mm-hmm. you know, it's like 100 years old at this point, but, you know, the guy did not miss. Still slaps, um, huh? Yeah, it still does. And, um, you know, if you want uh, a response to it, Cedric Robinson wrote a great one um, to the – at at around, I think, the 50-year mark to the <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. to the various sure. arguments that had been mobilized um, against the book. And Gavin Wright gave a, uh, a Tanner lecture more recently in the last 10 years or so. Um, so, so if you read those three things, you can get um, a good view of the, of the history and the relationship between slavery, the industrial revolution and colonialism, which I think is the kind of key set of historical relationships for thinking about reparations. Okay, great. Uh, we'll really appreciate it. Now, unfortunately, this means, as you know, it's now time for me to torture you. Oh boy. So this is the enlightening round. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. And you are a returning guest. So this is the enlightening round two trolley boogaloo edition. Um, (laughs) So I'm going to give you a list of scenarios, right? And you are going to tell me when is it morally permissible to pull the lever, right? Oh, boy. All right. All right. All right. Feeling ready. All right. So, um, is it morally permissible to save five people by killing one? Classic starter case. Yes. Okay. Uh, is it morally permissible then to save a billion people by killing one? I'm going to assume also yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Is it morally permissible to save yourself by killing one? Yes. Okay. Is it morally permissible to save yourself by killing one million? No. Okay. Is it morally permissible to save five by pushing someone onto the tracks, but it's the person who's responsible for putting them there in the first place? Yes. Okay. Is it permissible to kill your favorite artist to save their entire complete works? Oh, no. (laughs) That one took a turn. Um, Good to know. (laughs) <laughs> is it permissible to save five, but you've got to go through a teleporter to get there? To, to get to the lever? Yes, to go to the lever, you yourself would have to go through a teleporter. Yes. Okay. Um, is it permissible, right, to save a 10-year-old by killing an 80-year-old? no (laughs) permissible to save a world historic person by killing a non-world historic person 
No. Okay. What about to save your favorite specific non-human animal, such as your pet, by killing one human? Uh, no. Okay. What about to save an entire ecosystem by killing one human? Yes. Okay. And finally, saving a sentient artificial intelligence by killing one human? No. Interesting. All right. You survived the trolley. How do you feel? I feel sad. <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad that the second version of this is holding up i felt like i was worried after the first round being so popular that like this one wasn't going to torture properly but i'm glad it's working uh well we can um how do you feel about second round a little bit for a little bit of bonus content yeah I mean, we it. can we can talk about your feelings <laughs> some there a little bit um before we get to that for for non-patrons do you want to let folks know where they can find you twitter handles things like that yeah um olufemi otaiwo.com that's o-l-u-f-e-m-i-o-t-a-i-w-o that's also my twitter handle at olufemi otaiwo um pick up the book i think it comes out january 20th okay reconsidering um reparations there we go uh all right well thanks so much and thanks folks for listening thank you As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Uh, Shout out to our new monthly patron, Apple Yard, and our new yearly patron, Slamo. And as always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, New Year, new 364 days to go, 357 rather. Dude, fix the vote. Any election lawyers want to pioneer a case on the CA Fair Map Act? Chad T. and Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our top-tier Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor's show, Louisa Lyons' Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus after-hours content. Most of all, No matter what means you have, you are the void, and the void is you. 